It's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Can't hear you, John. Sorry, I was muted. Um, greetings, greetings. <laughs> okay. Uh, greetings yourself, you cretin. <laughs> Off to another uh, smooth start here. Smooth, smooth sailing on the Bruin Network. Yeah. 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 We have uh, no troubles uh, mastering technology, and uh, it, it is this is why we're such good brewers, is because yes, everything goes right for us. We make no mistakes, and uh, you know we don't uh, don't learn from our mistakes. There you go. We are very familiar with the seat of our pants. Yes, 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 uh, and you know who else enjoys the seat of his pants? <laughs> our good friend yeah john blickman he is one seat of his pants kind of guy he's uh always uh i wouldn't say caressing but uh you know uh enjoying the seat of his pants <laughs> has a has a firm hand on the seat of his pants yeah. firm, firm a very firm hand uh yes uh, i would describe his caress as very firm very firm I would also uh, describe his knowledge of uh, brewing and uh, brewing equipment is very firm as well and engineering. Indeed. Brilliant guy creating a lot of uh, amazing products for people to brew with, uh, whether you are a home brewer uh, and even if you're a home brewer with a, you know, uh, a tighter budget, um, there's the Anvil Brewing products. That's right. If you uh, are a home brewer with a little bit more of the green stuff to uh, spend. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of the, the other Blickman engineering products. And then if you're somebody that wants to get into commercial brewing or you uh, believe that you can, you know, sneak a, a commercial size brew plant into your house uh, past the spouse. Well, they have those too. All sorts of different sizes ranging up, uh, I think, five, seven barrels, 10 barrels, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Turnkey systems all. ready to go. Yeah. And, you know, if it's Blick. Blickman Engineering, you know, it's good stuff. You know, it's been designed to brew, not to uh, just to sell. So check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. If you get a chance, send a nice email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell John how much you appreciate that he pays for the show so you don't have to. Uh, Super nice guy, and I know he'd appreciate uh, just hearing that you're enjoying the show. Um. Let's see. What else has been going on? Uh, none of us have been traveling. Are you still no. traveling? No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. No, I've been stuck here for the last week or so, checking the fires on the on the fire map, make, see how close it is getting day by day. We had clear blue skies today. Nice. I was, nice. I was stunned. It's uh, no smoke. It's all, you know, good delta breeze come, comes in off the ocean and... Uh, just clears everything out. Yeah. 
We had clear skies a couple of days ago, but it's uh, it's clouding up again, or I should say, smoking up again, because mm-hmm. they're getting fairly close, just a couple miles away. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, I'm just I'm so missing getting a chance to go out to uh, various uh, countries and uh, yeah, you know, various states and visit and and see people. Um, I'm really missing that. Yeah, all the really nice beer fests we went to last year, um, competitions, mm-hmm. seeing all our friends overseas, and you know, it is we do miss that definitely. Right. Well, and uh, you know it. it you mentioned overseas and all the, the, the festivals over there. Uh, one of the big ones is Oktoberfest, which is going on right now. That's right. Uh, people right. don't understand that it starts in September. That's right. <laughs> and it goes, uh, you know, just like a week into October sometimes. Um, it's really a September fest. And um, we, we did one here last year and uh, we had it in September and people are like, Oh, what a bunch of idiots. Don't you, this is October. <laughs> You're supposed to have it in October. Don't you know anything? And we're like, well, yeah, we, we do know that <laughs> October starts in September. Um, but uh, you know, since it's October season, I thought maybe, you know, we could talk about Oktoberfest beers. Because uh, yep. it's still one of those styles, it, although it's you know an older style, you know it's a classic style. There's still a lot of people really enjoy good Oktoberfest beer. Oh yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. In fact, I just picked up a six of Sierra Nevada uh, Oktoberfest yesterday. Mm-hmm. Just to have a good quaffing beer while I'm outside grilling. You know, we have purchased uh, kegs of Einger. Ah. We've got, uh, I think, four kegs of their Oktoberfest, uh, two kegs of their Doppelbach, two, wow. two kegs of their Maibach, which is very, very, yeah. very made the once a year, and um, two kegs of their Dunkel. So we're going to have quite the Oktoberfest. Dang. <laughs> my, my favorite breweries. Yeah, yeah. Tough to drive up there. Well, and uh, so the, the rep from Iyengar was here. And uh, I mentioned the story of the goat. Uh, oh, yeah. It's been a long time since, since we talked about the goat. So on the bottle of uh, every uh, bottle of Iyengar Celebrator, their Doppelbach, there's like a little, there's a little goat, plastic goat that's on a string around the neck of the bottle. And uh, what you do is you take this goat and you put it on your mash tun and it has magical properties that improve the quality of your beer. But you can't just go and steal one off a bottle at the BevMo. You have to have to buy the bottle of beer. You have to drink it in the presence of your of your brewery, right. and then you put the, the the goat on the on the mash tun, and thus uh, you get this uh, special magical powers that improve the quality of your beer. Uh, I've been doing this is this was actually what took me from brewing just so so beer to great beer. And winning all these awards was the goat. It's nothing else, just the goat. And so uh, I mentioned this to her. I told her the story about how there's a number of commercial breweries, even and a ton of home brewers who have the goat hanging on their on their brewery. And she could say, "You know, do you have one here?" I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have a brewery without a goat, right?" So I took her up on the on the brew platform, and there's the goat. <laughs> Uh, nice. And uh, 
a friend of mine, uh, tr at True Symmetry, just down the road in Sassoon, he's got one on his brew plant as well. So there. Well, I, it, it certainly so, served you well over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, now I've given up my secret. Everyone can now, uh, you know, uh, take over and I, I've, I've lost my edge. And so I've shared the goat secret, but you can't just go take one. You actually have to drink the beer. You have to drink it while you're in the presence of your, your brew plant. You can sprinkle right. a little bit on the brew plant if you want, but uh, that's, that's the key there of, of the goat magic. So, and I, I heard that uh, rambling on stories, but uh, I was told that the goat, uh, they did that some years back because uh, like the, the local town was, you know, suffering unemployment or whatever it needed, uh, you know, revenue coming in. And so they had these goats made in the local town mm. and um, they started putting on the bottle. And then after a few years, they're just like, well, okay, we don't need to do this anymore. So they stopped and then people freaked out that there was no <laughs> goat on the bottle anymore. So they, had to, they had to continue doing it. So there you go. It was something to help out the town, and now it's a permanent part of the bottle. Part of the legacy, yeah. And they're just they're just south of uh, Munich, where uh, the Oktoberfest. Oh, is okay, yeah, so yeah, close there, in the little town of Eying. Um, where you know, let's go back a little bit. What's kind of the history of Oktoberfest, John? Where where well, did Oktoberfest start? Why? Well, it started in uh, 1810 with the marriage of the crown prince and princess, whose names I forget, uh, though uh, the princess's name was uh, Teresa in English. Mm -hmm. And um, they had this uh, wedding um, party uh, and a horse race out on this meadow uh, named after the princess. And everybody had such a good time. They said, we should do this again next year. So that was the start of the Oktoberfest festival in the, towards the end of September. Uh, and it was, about, it was for the, uh, the wedding of the prince and princess. Um, and of course they had snacks and they had beers and the original Oktoberfest beer would have been a Munich Dunkel. That was the dominant beer style at the time. Um, but now 1810, if you think about that in the context of brewing history, um, Pilsner beer was developed in 1842. Mm -hmm. um, and the story of Pilsner beer is a very interesting topic as well. But in terms of the, the Bavarian uh, beers at the time, you had your Munich Dunkel. And you had a number of very uh, famous brewers at the time, um, Gabriel uh, Settlemeyer and Anton Dreyer uh, from uh, Munich and uh, I forget where uh, Dreyer is from, Vienna. He was from Vienna. And they had gone to England in uh, 1833 to learn more about how they were producing pale malt. Um, with uh, using coke for firing their kilns um, as opposed to the German methods which were uh, generally using wood. Now the Germans use both direct fire and indirect fire um, to dry their malt. The direct fire uh, of course with the smoke or so on gave rise to the smoked malt very mm -hmm. popular in Bamberg and then they had indirect as well 
um, their standard Munich malt was uh, a darker malt, somewhere in the in the between ten and twenty lova bond. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it for making making a dunkel. Yeah, a hundred percent Munich malt. You've got a dunkel. It's a very lovely, rich uh, tasting beer. Super and, malty and got a rich, rich amber color, uh, almost brown to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, a very deep amber uh, mm-hmm. for you get from the Munich malt. Um, but they were very interested in these paler malts that the English were producing, and so um, they. Uh, started using uh, Moravian barley and uh, the maltster there uh, was pre- uh, incorporated the, the, uh, the lighter kilning uh, regimen. And that's how Vienna malt was started being produced. Mm-hmm. And so both um, Sittemeyer and Dreyer or Dreyer, I'm not, probably not pronouncing these right. My apologies. Um, started using Vienna malt and they both inter- introduced Vienna style beers in 18, uh, where my notes say 1840, 1841. Yes. And then a year later, uh, Pilsner uh, was introduced by the, mm-hmm. the Czech brewers. So over time, the, there was a transition at Oktoberfest from the Dunkel to these Vienna styles and then a little stronger Meritzen style, again, brewed with a combination of the Munich and Vienna malts. Mm-hmm. And with the advent of the Pilsner malt at around the same time, you started getting um, variations. Now, interestingly enough, in uh, by my notes again here, in 1872, the Franz O'Connor Leist Brewery of Munich introduced their Oktoberfest beer, named Oktoberfest, as a golden yellow beer. Um, and this beer is still brewed today as Spaten Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Hocker followed in 1893 with a Munchener Gold. And then Munich Helles debuted as a style in 1895. So there was uh, this you know, variety of beers now being served at Oktoberfest. You had the Dunkel, the Meritzen, the Vienna, and uh, these Oktoberfest or Helles, uh, more Helles style beers. Um, so, um, you know, of those four styles, one other interesting fact, if you look at Ron Pattinson's work, if you're familiar with Ron, he's a, a beer historian he's reviewed a lot of the brewing records and he's noticed that um, most of the German lager beers from the late 1800s on, you know, 1850 to 1900 were generally lower attenuated than beers today. Mm -hmm. And that attenuation averaged between 65 and 70% apparent attenuation. Whereas today, most beers are at 75 to 80% apparent attenuation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there they be that difference too in terms of the character of the beer uh right. you know uh historic oktoberfest to today's oktoberfest let's do this let's take a short break uh to hear from some of our sponsors and uh when we come back we'll have more uh, about oktoberfest and meritsons and 
and uh, all of that right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking uh, Oktoberfest beers. Uh, and uh, Wesley wanted to know, uh, does John Palmer even actually brew anymore or just talk about it? I do brew, and I've brewed twice this past summer. Um, I was just thinking to myself, I need to brew again as I right. Right. looking at these nice Oktoberfest beers. Uh, I've got a, I've got a sack of Maris Otter literally right behind me. It's right there mm-hmm. next to my desk, just waiting to be used. Um, I know that's not the right malt exactly for Oktoberfest, but it's what I've got available. And, um, I've got, got some, um, uh, 3470 yeast available, so I'm ready. There you go. It's just a matter of doing it now. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing about uh, the commercial brewing is, you know, you got to keep brewing. You got to, you got to, you know, bills to pay and you got uh, customers to, to feed and there you go. Um, uh, forces you to do it. Uh, let's go back to uh, the, uh, you were talking about uh, Ron Pattinson and the attenuation has improved. Uh, one of the things that people have talked about, about uh, beers at Oktoberfest is that now, you know, they are uh, selling, uh, you know, a much lighter, uh, you know, yeah. um, higher alcohol beer, uh, you know, or, or, a you know, a, a thinner, uh, residual, I guess. So people yeah. can, you know, consume and mass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the, the older, uh, styles say, you know, 1850, 1875, um, generally around, uh, 6% ABV. Um, and that has drifted downwards now to about five to five and a half percent ABV. Mm-hmm. The, um, as opposed to the Bach and double Bach, uh, the, the Oktoberfest or the Meritzen style was never uh, as strong as the Bach's. Um, it was more of a, uh, an afternoon, you know, quaffing kind of beer. It wasn't, it wasn't this the strong beer. Um, but yeah, the, the, it has dropped about 1% ABV, uh, over the last hundred years or so. But again, there's a real variety of beers that are served at October, Oktoberfest. So, um, you know, it, it's never been, there's never been a defined Oktoberfest style. I mean, outside of the home brewing world where we're mm-hmm. trying to nail it down um so yeah you would there's always been a range of anywhere from you know four and a half five five and a half six six and a half percent you know depending on whose beer you're you're talking about in particular right right and um uh rich was asking uh i'd love to hear your thoughts on Mertzens versus my box versus oktoberfest versus fest beers so uh, you know, Meritzen versus Oktoberfest. I mean, to me, they're really the same beer. 
you know, yeah. I guess sometimes people say, well, you know, one's a little more amber, or a little more this or a little more that. I think essentially for me, it's the same beer. Um, I, I guess traditionally uh, they would brew these uh, in, in, in March and then they would, uh, you know, uh, keep lagering them and yes, you know, they would sell whatever was the remainder of it would be used at Oktoberfest. Right. Right. Yeah. That was one, one origin story for uh, the Meritson and, you know, like I said, there is the, the Dunkel and the Meritson styles were kind of side by side. Uh, Meritson being a little bit lighter. uh, And, you know, as you say, you know, they're finishing off the uh, beer brewed in March in September to get ready for the new brewing season. So, Hey, let's, let's have a party. Let's, let's take all this beer to the Oktoberfest and we can drink it there. So that's uh, one reason that that style of beer became associated mm-hmm. with Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also important to understand that the, the Hellas style Munich Hellas was uh, very much associated with Oktoberfest, say from 18, I think it was 1890 on mm-hmm. um, you know these pale loggers uh, in fact right. there was a uh, one of the meetings of the the Brewers Association of Munich um, several breweries got together and tried to uh, propose and pass an edict preventing the uh, manufacture of pale beers uh, because they felt it was cutting too much into their dunkel business um, but the brewers of the pale beer the uh, uh, Spot and Brewery, and what was the other one? Um, anyway, they said no, no. We're it was the Shore Brewery. Um, we're making this. We're you know the customers want it. We're going to keep brewing it. So you know there was a there was a gradual transition uh, in Oktoberfest beers from the the darker and heavier styles like Dunkel and Meritzen to the lighter styles such as uh, Hellas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, do you think that, uh, it was, you know, uh, people's drinkers, uh, preference that drove this or was it cost savings or was it, uh, you know, uh, the newer technology came in to allow for a paler beer, but is that what people were, you know, desiring? at the time or, or yeah i th- think that's a, that's a good question i think i think you really have to just pin it to you know constant human nature i mean hey what's new what's you know what's new that people are drinking so mm-hmm. pale beers at the time were new people wanted to try them um just like the the nipas today you know hey we've got these new flavors we're brewing them um you know, the traditionalists say are, you know, saying that's not IPA and like, no, it's not, it's, it's New England IPA. It's this uh, hazy IPA kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, back then they had their traditional beers and then they had these new pale beers that customers were asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, yeah. And that, also because of the invention of glass or, you know, inexpensive glass uh, containers right. that you could see through. Right. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the appearance of beer became, became a big deal where, where, you know, 
if it was brown and murky, it didn't matter before because you didn't really see it. You just tasted it. Yeah. And then it became a, a big thing once uh, glass was in use uh, more popularly, right? Right, right. Yeah. Eight, you know, I mean, this turn of the, turn of the 20th century was, uh, I, I guess I, what I'm trying to say, it was a very hip time. I mean, we, we had glass, we had science, we had the Industrial Revolution in full swing. Um, this was perceived as a very modern age uh, by people. So, yeah, they were looking for what's new. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, Pilsner beer was uh, very popular in the United States. And uh, I'm, I'm doing a project in for the MBAA with uh, – uh, Greg Casey, uh, formerly of uh, Miller Coors, and he's writing a history on the history of American lager, uh, American light lager. And it's amazing to understand the impact that American lager brewing was having on Europe mm-hmm. because we were brewing uh, adjunct lager and we were achieving clearer beers than what the Europeans were typically uh, achieving. Um, so the, in many cases, they were learning, um, you know, from us as well as us from them. Um, very dynamic time. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder, you know, the, the consumer is always looking for, you know, or, you know, I think the majority of consumers are always looking for something, you know, relatively light and refreshing to drink. Yep. And they want alcohol. And so, you know, it's, it's no um, coincidence that, you know, the majority of the beer consumed is, you know, very light uh, flavored beer, uh, you know, with very little flavor and, you know, it's mm-hmm. just an alcohol delivery thing and it's, it's, you know, quite refreshing. Yeah. Tastes um, great, less filling. All right. <laughs> That's why, <laughs> you know, seltzers and things like this have become popular because, you know, there's really nothing to them and, uh, you know, they're very light and it's just a delivery for alcohol. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's always, there's always some, some group of people, you know, like you and I and the yeah. rest of the homebrewers who want, you know, flavor and richness and, and history and all that, you know, talking about flavor and richness. Um, and Rich was asking us about my box and Meritson's and, um, my Bach, um, you know, so a lot of these uh, beers are brewed uh, in the fall. They lager throughout the winter, and then they're tapped in May for My Bach, right? Yeah. And uh, it tends to be a, a much lighter color uh, Bach beer uh, than the Doppelbach, and, uh, you know, uh, much paler. And then, um, you know, the Doppelbach itself, Tends to be released when? When when is a Doppelbach released traditionally? I, you know, I don't know. Um, don't, well, not a, now they're they're brewing them around the round year round. Oh yeah, technology. I think the Doppelbach, um, it, if I remember, um, the the Polliner monks brewed it for Lent mm-hmm. to consume during Lent. Mm-hmm. So that would mean that they were probably brewing it, say, in October, and then drinking it in the spring or, you know, in March. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. then with the desire for a uh, lighter color beers, again, the Maybach probably, uh, you know, came up 
after that, once they had the lighter beer technology, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the kilning of the malts. And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting that both survived. You know, if, if you look at, well, and, you know, Dunkel beer has survived too, but just barely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't sell nearly as much. Um, it's interesting that it, it, it hung on versus uh, a lot of these other beers. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. A um, couple of questions about the brewing. Um, let's do this. Let's do another short break. And when we come back, we will get into, uh, you know, a recipe for brewing an Oktoberfest beer and some of the techniques. We'll be back right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking Oktoberfest beers. And uh, what what's a typical Oktoberfest recipe? What what would you what would you recommend for and again, I guess you have to kind of identify this is more classic. This right. is, you know, more today. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you're going for more of a classic interpretation of the more of the amber Oktoberfest, more of the Meritzen mm-hmm. uh, end, end of it, um, you'd be looking uh, first off at a gravity of around uh, 1055 to 1060 is mm-hmm. pretty typical somewhere in there. Uh, usually uh, a one to two um, gravity um, gravity units to bitterness units. That is, it's it um, thirty IBUs, for example, for a a sixty a ten sixty uh, OG somewhere. You know, so twenty five to thirty IBUs for this style is is mm-hmm. typical. Um, Next, you know, if you're going for the Meritzen style, you'd be using a uh, larger proportion of the Vienna malt, followed by a little bit of Munich for some extra punch and uh, a good percentage of Pilsner malt to balance it out. Um, and then depending on how, how rich and sweet you wanted that, beer to be, you would add, say, 5% of like a Cara Munich to give it a little bit more color and a little bit uh, more residual sweetness. Um, So in my mind, a typical recipe for these Amber Meritsons would be something like 60% Vienna, 25% Pils, uh, 10% Munich, and like 5% of the Cara Munich. Mm -hmm. Then your hop bill would be mostly bittering uh, additions. So again, you're looking for 25 to 30 IBUs total. I would put most of those IBUs into the bittering dose and then just a touch into at the end, the end of the boil if you want some hop aroma or a little more hop character in the beer. But generally, these are very malt-focused uh, beers. Mm-hmm. And then a lager yeast such as the uh, 3470 strain or uh, or Bavarian lager, um, something like that. All right. Um, let's see. 
what did we do here at uh, Heretic the last time we brewed this? Uh, we went with uh, our silo malt, which is a raw Alex. We did uh, 42 percentish. Uh, we did uh, Fireman uh, Vienna, and that was at about 22.5%, and uh, Fireman Munich, about 28%. Okay. And then uh, uh, Fireman Care uh, Munich 3, uh, we used about 7%. Okay. So you had kind of like a third, a third, a third almost uh-huh. ratio of those three base malts. Yeah. yeah not quite, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. We dialed it down a little bit from there. Um, and let's see, uh, starting gravity, 13 and a half P, uh, Plato. Mm-hmm. About um, 1054. Uh, sounds about right. Uh, finishing gravity, uh, 3.2 Plato. Okay. Uh, so an alcohol, uh, by volume, uh, about 5.7 It's right. right in that, right in that, that range. Uh, hopping Halitau, uh tradition at uh, 6.8% alpha acid. This was the 2016 crop. Um, we used uh, 6.8 kilograms uh, at 60 minutes and 1.4 kilos at Whirlpool. And this was for ooh, 38 barrel-ish, uh, 30, 38, 38.7 barrels of uh, Oktoberfest. And we ferment with uh, the 830 yeast, okay. uh, the German lager yeast, uh, because we use it for other beers. I always um, enjoyed using um, uh, like the Eyinger strain and, yeah. you know, uh, the, some of the other, uh, you know, the South German lager and some of those other ones. The only ones I think you can't use are something like a, the Mexican lager or the American lager yeast. Right. Um, you know, most of most of the ones that are identified as German work well in in these styles. Some will express more maltiness. Some will express um, a little more dryness or acidity um, or more hops. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's just uh, it's nice to try them all. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, if we if we were going to brew that more to the Hellas side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think you could, you know, back off on the Vienna Munich in favor of Pilsner malt, right. um, move some percentages around. Um, and, you know, you still, so you could take your beer color from say uh, five or eight SRM down to a three to five SRM, mm-hmm. make a little bit more golden than say amber. Or you can, you know, intensify the color and go up. And, yeah, know, that's true. Yeah. Get more uh, towards there. And um, let's see here. Uh, Josh asked, is there any reason to Whirlpool Oktoberfest beers? I typically Whirlpool hop heavy beers like IPA instead of the more malty German beers. Well, I guess, I guess what he's asking is if, you know, um, you're not Whirlpooling them to do hop additions your or separate uh, trube yeah uh, like in a commercial for break. break for the break material yeah that's that's why you whirlpool is to, before mm-hmm. it goes in the heat exchanger but uh yeah you're not doing you're not really doing whirlpool hop additions for this style mm-hmm. so i i wouldn't um i would you know 
uh, filter and chill like you normally would, uh, but not really. Maybe you could do one hop addition just for a touch of, you know, noble hop aroma or something like that. But um, otherwise, it's it's not exactly a style. Yeah, we do a, a tiny bit of uh, whirlpool hopping, uh, really just um, because we like to lager it uh, quite a long time. And the lagering uh, time, that, that hop note tends to settle out into just a kind of a subtle background hoppiness. When we just added it in the, in the boil, um, it was, you know, really wasn't present. And, you know, we want just a faint kind of, you know, note of, yes, there are hops in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You're a craft brewer. We're, we're doing this because we like <laughs> hops and beer. Okay. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, we whirlpool it. I would always, I would always whirlpool any beer, um, especially if you get you know substantial break material. Um, you don't have to. I mean, you can just let the break material settle to the bottom and then you know draw off. But you know, if you if you whirlpool, you can get a you know a little pile in the cone in the middle. And I guess it depends on your your tools that you're using to uh, draw off. Um, uh, the, the the work and if if you've got a way of drawing it off and not pulling a whole bunch of the tube along with it and uh, then yeah there, I guess there's no reason to whirlpool at that point. Yeah, if you have one of the anvil kettle strainers, which are made from a stainless steel braid, they do a great job of uh, separating your tube and hops from the going into the fermenter. There you go, a little product placement for you there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Leaf is asking, uh, hello, do you still recommend the tasty method for lagers? I keep saying it's, it's the narciss. It's, uh, the, uh, the modified narciss, uh, uh, way of, of brewing. If, but, uh, yeah, we can call it the tasty method as well. Uh, can you tell how to practice the fermentation process when you, when final gravity is reached, do you leave it in the fermenter a week extra or do you package after a day high temp rest? So the, the whole concept, um, it's, I, you know, through reading and trying different stuff, uh, when I was home brewing, I came across this process of starting colder in order to minimize uh, development of some of the precursors of, of um, some of the fermentation byproducts you don't want in a lager. So starting a little bit colder, um, so I would... And here at, uh, at, at Heretic, we do, um, uh, let's see here, we do uh, generally 40, 45-ish. Let's see where this, this one started at. Uh, let's see, initial temp. Uh, yeah, I don't see it on this one. Um, so we would start at... Um, 44 to 47 is kind of where we, we like to pitch. It just depends on uh, water temperature and things like that. And we will um, uh, pitch our yeast. We'll remove uh, uh, any sort of fermentation temperature control up to 50. Or we'll like reset our, our, our uh, controls to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So you pitch the yeast and, and within, you know, a, a day, usually as the yeast growth happens and it's just getting 
started, it will bump itself up to 50. So uh, then it's at 50. We will we will control it at 50 for for a couple of days, you know, a day or two, and then we start removing the temperature control, and we'll let it rise, uh, you know, a couple of degrees a day, two two to three degrees per day, and by the end of a week, it's pretty much done at that point. Uh, so fermentation takes about a week, and at that point, you're running around, you know, 64 degrees or so. We'll take the last of the fermentation control off. It may rise another degree or so. Um, and then we'll let it set for, for a day or two at, while we check for um, uh, BDKs, yeah. uh, and acetaldehyde, things like that. And uh, we do that in our lab. We can do it, you know, sensory. Um, you know, once, once we can't taste it ourselves, then we, you know, double check in the lab. But 99 times out of 100, by doing this properly with the proper pitch of yeast and the proper temperature control, uh, you end up with beer after seven days that is fully attenuated and does not have these off, off flavors in them. And yeah. so that's kind of uh, a, a narcissist thing, you know, People talk about doing a, a dacil arrest at the end by raising temperature. And what I'm saying is you don't necessarily want, you could do a static fermentation temperature and then just raise it at the end, which is kind of difficult in a commercial setting. And it's difficult for some homebrewers because they don't have heating, right? You got chilling to do your lagers, but then you need heating as well. Because you know once it's done fermenting, nothing's really going to drive the temperature up unless you've got like a hot garage or something. And with the fermenters we have, there's no way of heating them. So you really need to plan to get your fermentation temperature up uh, in, mm -hmm. in, in heat. So uh, by doing this, a couple of things are happening. You're restricting uh, some of that um, early growth and uh, development of some of these compound precursor compounds for uh, VDKs and uh, what have you. And so you're increasing the activity of the yeast as you go over time. And uh, so that the yeast keep working and do attenuate more. And at, at the end, we'll start taking up some of these compounds that are there. And so it's, it's a very quick, easy way to make lagers. Now, we still like the lager. And one of the important things that I didn't realize early on in brewing, but I, I realized later on that um, in lowering the temperature of the yeast, there is a reason for lowering it very slowly. Uh, so we will do uh, three degrees Fahrenheit in the morning, and then we'll make a three degrees Fahrenheit change in the evening before we leave. So um, every 24 hours, you're dropping up to six degrees Fahrenheit. And so we take it down from the existing temperature down to uh, you know, below, uh, you know, 40, um, and then we're good. Uh, if you want to logger it with yeast activity, you'll also slowly bring it down, but you won't go below 40. Maybe you go to 45 or, you know, 50 and you're logger at that temperature. If you, if you want the yeast activity still to be there, if you go below 40, there's really no yeast activity. So we drop it down, uh, and then we let it sit. 
and then we'll uh, uh, package after that. But um, the, you know, the, it's, it's, you know, this may not work for some people because you need to have a good, sizable, healthy pitch ready to go. And, you know, then you can pitch at these lower temperatures and then you can let it rise. If you are limited in your pitch, um, you know, you may just get a really slow ferment, not a very active ferment. If, if that case, if you see that happening, raise the temperature on it. You know, start bumping the temperature up, go up a few degrees, get up to you know, 55, you know, 57, let the thing, you know, go uh, because you'll, you'll just end up with a partially attenuated beer, which will be even worse. Yeah. Um, Let me yeah, comment yeah, a bit yeah. on that. Um, <laughs> there was a really good uh, lager workshop this past week at the World Brewing Congress, which is virtual uh, these days. Um, Ashley Carter of Beerstadt uh, talked about her lagering method, her lager brewing method, mm -hmm. and uh, as well as um, Dasan from Live Oak and Florid Coupland from um, Urban Chestnut. And it was interesting in the workshop because each of them had their own methodology, you know, their own standard practice, just like you've discussed, Jamil, um, for doing their lagers. Uh, Florin used the nar modified Narcissus in general um, with his, you know, temperatures and so on and his yeast strain. Ashley has her own house yeast strain, um, and she uh, prefers to do a very long, cold fermentation. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, she starts cool and keeps it very cool for a long period of time, about a two week primary fermentation mm -hmm. and then gradual decline in temperature, you know, down to about 40 degrees, holding it there for another seven days um, before continuing down to like 32 so, for an extended longer time. And part of the, you know, the way she's able to do that. Mm -hmm. is that she is pitching and repitching her yeast. She has trained her yeast to work with that regimen. And she has trained her palate and yeah. you know to 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 understand her beer, mm -hmm. do the VDK tests and so on and know when that beer and is ready at each stage of the process. So I guess I what I'm trying to say there's a lot yeah. of different ways to brew lager beer. Sure but you have to understand what's happening from the yeast mm -hmm. and beer point of view. Yeah. I caution people against long, low temperature, uh, slower fermentations in lagers because the yeast produce quite a bit of sulfur. And when you have these less active fermentations, they're, they're slower fermentations, you tend to build up a much higher uh, residual uh, amount of sulfur in the beer. And then, you know, people are always asking, well, how do I get rid of the sulfur? And you can bubble CO2 through it. But, you know, it, if you're going to do something like that, you just need to make sure you're, you're um, fermenting vigorously enough, vigorously enough uh, that it blows off the, the, the sulfur. You need that expelling of, of gas to, to drive off the sulfur. Otherwise, it can, it can get kind of out of hand and did you say there was a third one that that people were doing um i guess uh, dasan was talking about his method and um it was kind of a blend of the two um mm -hmm. he used a I, 
I believe he used a warm fermentation, but a longer, colder lagering mm -hmm. uh, time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, you know, it, it's, I imagine it is a bit confusing for new lager brewers and hearing all these different, you know, correct ways to do it. Mm -hmm. But it really depends on understanding, you know, the yeast, how they work, and the taste of the beer. And as you say, you know, sure. you know, you can do it this way, but you got to be aware of the sulfur. Mm -hmm. You can do it the other way, but you got to be aware of, you know, mm -hmm. needing it to temperature rise. And, you know, there's, right. yeah, yeah, many ways to skin the cat. Sure, sure. Um, is there any benefit, Dennis is asking, is there any benefit to first wort hop these beers? Um, hotly debated topic. I always first word hop because I can, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know that I've never done a side by side to say that there's a definite difference. Um, I think there have been some side by sides and I can't think I, I don't remember hearing that they were conclusive one way or another. Yeah. You know, my, my, uh, experience with first word hopping is, it really just essentially adds to the bittering and nothing to the, nothing to the aroma. Um, you know, the, the Germans, the traditional Germans back in the day, they weren't looking for any flavor whatsoever from the hops. They just wanted pure, clean bitterness and adding the hops early tend to blow off a lot more of those aromatics and flavor compounds, I think. And I, I think that's really, you know, the, the, the general concept they were going for back then. Yeah. They said they got a smoother beer or a smoother hop character. Well, maybe that meant, you know, less right. hop flavor, <laughs> right. you know, it depends on what you're looking for. It certainly doesn't hurt to do it. Yeah. Um, I think if, if, if you enjoy it, I would say go for it. That's the beauty of home brewing. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's take another real short break. And when we come back, we've got a question from Jimmy about, uh, the, his, his lack of, of being able to chill. We'll be back right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're talking Oktoberfest and how to brew great Oktoberfests and lagers and things like that because tis the season. Uh, let's see. Jimmy was asking with my setup, I can only chill down to 62 to 64 in the kettle. Would it be better to pitch the yeast and then continue chilling in fermentation fridge or put it in the fridge and wait to pitch until it hits the desired, uh, example, 50 or 52 Fahrenheit desired fermentation temperature. I always chill then pitch. I do too. Uh, the reason being you know, you, you put the yeast in there and you're asking them to, to go to work and then they feel the, the cooling and getting colder and colder. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's could be, could be a problem. I know people who have done it and the beer turned out pretty good. Um, and I know, you know, some, some, there's some advice out there to let the yeast get going at that temperature and then chill it down, which makes like zero sense to me. Uh, because a lot of the flavor you're developing de is Bruising. developing at that initial pitching temperature. Yeah. So, um, you know, fermenting later on at a lower temperature, I don't think really helps. So what I did when 
I struggled to get the temperature down. I would, uh, you know, put the whole carboy in the, in the fr- fridge and, you know, pitch the next day or whatever. Yeah. When the temperature was correct. Uh, but what I would urge you to try, um, with your setup, you can only chill down to 62, 64. Um, if you have like a copper, uh, coil that you're using in tap water, you might get yourself, a, an inexpensive pump, you know, a sump pump or something like that. And then put it in a bucket of ice water, put some ice in there and then use that. And you can even recirculate that, um, you know, you can use hose water to start, get yourself down to 62, 64, and then switch to your bucket of ice water. And um, that will take it down the rest of the way. That, along with whirlpooling the, the wort, you can get down to, um, you know, uh, very cold. I was able to get my, my wort down into the, into the 40s, no problem with that. And it just takes a bit of ice and, um, you know, an inexpensive pump that can just pump some, some water cheap little aquarium pumps or sump pumps. Yeah. Yeah. I recommend waiting. You know, I mean, uh, I can only chill down to about 80 degrees here in Southern California. So I will get the wort made. I'll put it in the fermenter. Everything's nice and sanitized. Then I put it in the, in the fermentation fridge overnight. The next day it's down to my, you know, 65 or 55 in the case of lagers, you know, pitching temp. And then I'll aerate and pitch my yeast. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing it that way because it's convenient. It's one less thing I have to worry about on brew day. Um, I know my sanitation is good. I don't have any worries about, you know, needing to get, get it started sooner to get the, the yeast to, you know, uh, dominate the ferment, you know, the environment. No, my sanitation was good. I don't have any worries about letting it sit overnight. And then I just pitch the next day. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Ted is asking, uh, this is referring back to, I was talking about lowering the temperature of the, of the beer, uh, you know, slowly. He says, so what happens if you cold crash from 50 degrees down to 36 degrees Would letting it longer, longer help any off flavors? I just did this with mine a couple of weeks ago. Should I be worried? Yeah, Ted, just pour the whole thing out. Don't even, don't even wait. Just, uh, just dump it. Um, no, I, it'll be fine. Uh, but what happens is when you uh, quickly crash uh, yeast, I think I mentioned this in the yeast book, when you quickly crash yeast, they tend to express more of these uh, compounds, which can become uh, fruity esters. So uh, one of the reasons you slowly take a lager down is so that they don't uh, express these compounds. They utilize them in different ways in preparing themselves to go to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's why you, you take it down very slowly. And uh, this is one of the things that I missed when I was, you know, initially I'm just like, makes no sense. You know, you're not going to have yeast activity below 40. You know, why are people worrying about this whole thing and slowly bringing them down? And then I learned yeah, it does make a difference. And I think that the, the paper I saw uh, talked about like a 30 to 50% or 50% uh, increase in, in fruitiness of a beer if you crash it cold versus take it down slowly. So we, you know, here at Heretic, we spend the time uh, to take it down cold uh, slowly. Uh, it's more work, more time, but it definitely... Uh, seems to make a difference. 
So yeah, I, I don't think your beer is ruined, Ted. But you know, next time you brew one, you might want to try that that technique and see if uh, you get get better results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the workshop mentioned that too. They all slow cooled. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, in other words, it was a controlled cooling to take it from, you know, end of fermentation down to lagering. Um, yeah, we've been talking about that for, for so many years. I think, you know, it's just become uh, one of those, one of those things. Uh, Will is asking, what's your opinion using a yeast like Quebec Oslo in an Oktoberfest? So using a Quebec yeast at low temperatures as opposed to their normal high temperatures to suppress esters and brew a more lager character type beer. Um, Low temperature for quike is, you know, somewhere in the, you know, 60 to 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit range uh, compared to their normal temperatures of, say, 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, anytime you use a different yeast, it's going to be a different beer. So, you know, but again, if you want to try it that way and take advantage of, of kike's unique properties when it comes to fermentation, uh, do it. I think you're going to get a different tasting Oktoberfest, but um, it'll be a maybe, beer. Yeah, it'll be beer. It'll may, it may be a perfectly decent tasting beer. Um, and may, it may be even a decent interpretation of the Oktoberfest style. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess I, I have my doubts. Yeah, I must say. Yeah, it's uh, going to be different. It's yeah, it's it's not going to taste Oktoberfesty. I think it's going to taste right. You know, yeah, Kvike likes warm temperatures. It likes lots of yeast nutrient. In other words, high fan load, um, and uh, it's if you try to stress it and bring it down to cooler temperatures, um, you're probably going to get. Um, you know, you, you won't get the fusel alcohol or phenolic character that you experience with some yeast under stress, but I think you're going to get a different ester character that's going to taste, well, very un-Oktoberfest like really. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the, the issue. I think, you know, uh, we talked about high pressure brewing and things like that uh, and yeah. how, you know, it, it, it's just not the same as, you know, just a well-fermented lager under, you know, normal conditions. Yeah. I think, you know, people are always trying to find ways to kind of game the system as, as far as temperature control or, you know, yeast pitching or things like that. And I would just uh, urge people to, you know, invest in, you know, the ability to uh, control a fridge or something like that so you get proper temperature control. Um, it's well worth it. I mean, the results are amazing when you do, and especially in lagers, you can, you know, make just these stunning lagers and, uh, and lagers that are hard to get fresh, you know? Um, so I would, I would, uh, say it's definitely worth the effort. Uh, Willow was saying, would you then get a benefit of lagering it? Um, the- I, I, I think you get a benefit from lagering. Um, whether or not, you know, the, you know, if it's, if it's cold enough, the yeast aren't active. So yeast aren't really adding anything to it, but 
yes. I mean, long grain, just a, a, a period of cold uh, stabilization, maturation happens. And so I think uh, most beers benefit from a, a, a cold period of rest. Yeah, it, it may be a purely physical thing, depending on the yeast and the beer. You know, just dropping of the haze, dropping of all the the suspended yeast, you know, from that extended lagering time. Um, again, this depends on the particular yeast strain and the whole fermentation regimen that has gone through. But yeah, it, lagering will right. improve the beer probably. Yep. Uh, another fine show. Thanks for joining us. If you're listening live, stay tuned. We're going to have a, another episode coming immediately following this. Uh, make sure to check out our good friends at Brew Chatter in uh, Reno Sparks. Uh, good folks. Uh, great homebrew shop, uh, brewchatter.com. They got all sorts of great ingredients. Uh, they're wonderful people with a great knowledge of brewing and how to improve your brewing. So, so check them out. Good friends of mine. Uh, I enjoy going there uh, as often as I can. I hope, hope to see you there soon. So check that out. And uh, thank you for your support. And uh, Bruce Strong, everyone. Bruce Strong. <laughs>